So Friday afternoon, Janine and I got in the boat with our golden retriever, and we go to Caladesi Island, just past the mark where you can legally take pets, and so it's kind of the Clearwater, Caladesi Island line. And we're there, and we're setting up camp, you know, with our umbrellas and our chairs and stuff and cooler. And, and I look out in the west, just due west in the Gulf of Mexico, and I see, I see this it's just black, you know, but it's five or six miles out there, I'm guessing. And then about a half hour goes by, and I look to the south toward Clearwater Beach. And, I, you know, and by the way, no other idiot is on the beach. We're the only people out there. Nobody else is out there. And I look to the south at Clearwater, and I see some clouds starting to boil up, you know. And so I said to Danita, hey, I don't know. It's probably not looking good. You know, should we go? And she says, oh, it'll be fine, honey. Don't worry about a thing. So about an hour goes by, and that little black thing out there, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico is now about this wide. And it's no longer five or six miles. It's maybe two or three miles, and it's coming. I look to the, to the south again at Clearwater Beach. It's now Casa Denita. We're going to get nailed. Both of these systems are going, oh, we'll be, honey, we'll be fine. You want to go? Do you want to stay? Um, no, let's, let's kind of let's wait, wait this one out. So um, you know what happens. About 20 minutes later, um, it begins to rain. And so this is actually our umbrella, the umbrella. So we got the umbrella up under a rainstorm, and we're both sitting there, you know, underneath this chair, and our chair's just shivering and, and holding on, and the water's just dripping off, coming all over me. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to be warmer in the water. So I take off about 100 yards past the boat, way out there in the water, and I'm staying warm, and I don't know where this bolt of lightning came from. It was not more than a block away. It was loud from absolutely from the pit of hell or wherever it came from. And, and, and Danita's screaming at me, get out of the water. Peter and I are the only two men who've ever walked on water. And we both only walked on water for about a half a second because I sank again. But I was walking on water. I look up at the beach because I'm trying to get out. And Danita, the umbrella is now inverted. It's so windy. Three-foot waves now. The boat's crashing against the sand. The umbrella's inverted. She's going backwards, okay? I'm going to lose my wife in the wind. And um, it, was, it was pandemonium, and we're both working quickly and trying to get out of there. And the front anchor, the, the, the bow anchor, comes loose a little bit. Now the boat's going sideways back toward the sand. We've got a real problem, so we get on the boat. And the golden retriever dog gets on the seat with the knee. Dean's going to drive because I'm going to pull the anchor. I'm going to try to pull the boat forward. And that golden retriever dog was right there, leaning, pressing, making sure Danita was okay. Didn't care a thing about me, but just wanted to make sure that Danita was fine. It, it, was, it was, obviously, we live to tell the story, right? But everybody in the room has been through some kind of a storm. How many of you have been through a hurricane? Okay. How about a tornado? All right. A lot of Midwesterners probably with tornadoes. How about an earthquake? Anybody with an earthquake? Guy, guy in second service told me he'd been through a volcano. Anybody had a volcanic eruption before? Really? Gosh, you guys live on the edge. So, so anyway, somebody else in first service said they lived through a dam bursting, a dam burst on somebody else. I'd never thought about that before. But anyway, we, we, we've all had these storms. Jesus 
at the end of a two-hour sermon, tells a story about a storm. He tells a storm story at the end of his first message, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he preach at the Sea of Galilee on a hillside, hundreds and hundreds of people there? Why is the last illustration he gives a story about a storm? Because Jesus knows we all go through storms. Every man, every woman in this room, you're either coming into a storm, you're either coming out of a storm, or you're in the middle of a storm. We're in one of those three areas of our lives, aren't we? We're coming in, going out, or we're right dead smack in the middle of a storm. And so Jesus knows that everybody's going to experience storms. That's not the issue. The issue is not whether or not you're going to have a health storm. You're going to. Whether or not you're going to have a vocation storm, you will. Whether or not you're going to have a financial storm, you will. A relational storm. Jesus knows this. The issue is not whether or not you will have a storm. The issue is whether or not you have a foundation that can last through the storm. And so when he tells this great sermon, and as he ends this message, everybody's building something. He's going to talk about builders And just before we get into it, you're building something too. Everybody in the room, you're building an education, you're building a school, you're building a business, you're building a family, everybody, you're building your retirement, everybody in the room is building something. And so we all fit in this story about a storm. So let's join this story. It's in Matthew chapter 7, and we'll start with verse 24. And Jesus says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, he's been preaching for two hours. Two hours he's been talking, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's the difference. They hear it, but they put it into practice. They're like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, that is a a cool house, isn't it? Isn't that a cool house on that? I don't know whose that is, but that would be fun, and that that house is going to stay, isn't it? Look at the next couple slides. Look at this next next house. That house is built on a rock. It's probably going to last for a long, long time, but this next picture, I don't know how they did this. Look at this house up there. That house, chances of that boulder collapsing is not very good, is it? And Jesus is talking about if you got your house built on that kind of a foundation, when the storms come, you're probably going to make it. Look at the next verse, verse 25. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Ironically, I was working on this message about three weeks ago when we had all that rain. It looks like this week we're going to have more rain, right? So it's kind of funny. So the rains are going to come, the streams are going to rise, the the winds are going to blow, and they're going to beat against the house. Now, you and I don't always understand this culture, but they would build their homes close to the Jordan River. They would build their homes close to the Sea of Galilee. They would build their homes close enough to a water source where they could get to the water source and get there kind of efficiently. Now, if you build your house too close to the water source... When the rains come and the streams rise and the banks are overflowing, your house is probably going to collapse. But if you build your house too far away from the water source, then it takes you forever to get your water. And so every 
Jew in that culture instantly can picture the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, these different bodies of water. All right, look at the next verse, verse 26. But everyone, and here's the contrast, who hears these words of mine and just doesn't put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. What happens? The rains come down, the streams rise, the winds blow and they beat against the house and it crashes with the great crash. Now just look at this next little video for just a second. That's called a really bad day. So Jesus tells a storm story at the end of his two-hour sermon, and it really is more to do with your life. It's the foundation upon which you choose to build your life. Everybody builds in this room. Everybody's building something in this room. That's not the question. The question is going to be is what's going to be your foundation. And so let's just kind of go back to verse 24 for just a second and springboard from that. So verse 24 again says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus has been talking for two hours, and what he's trying to do now is get everybody to listen to the things he said in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. So what I want to do for just a couple minutes this morning is summarize our summer. And this summer, we've looked through those three different chapters. Now, what Jesus wants to do in these three chapters is meet your greatest needs. Jesus always meets needs. This is what amazes me when I run into somebody and I invite them to church or I invite them to something that, you know, that we do at Harborside, and they'll say, I'm just not that interested in spiritual things. I'm like, really? Because the more I discover about Jesus and study Jesus, the more I find he meets my deepest needs. In fact, all his teachings, he deals with felt needs or with the deepest needs that we all have. And so I want to surface, if you've got a bulletin, I've got nine blanks for you to fill in. And there are nine different needs that Jesus meets in our lives in these three chapters. So let's just start with the very first one. And the first need is a need for God. Everybody has a need for God. People in this room, people outside this room, everybody has a need for God. Now, what do we base that on? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, He's placed eternity in our hearts. He has wired you with a little chip that's pro-God. And so there are people who do it in an orthodox way, like we think we do it, but there are also people who do it in a very unorthodox way. But nevertheless, there is this great need for God. And so right off the bat, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses our greatest need. And I'm going to read it out of the message translation because it's a little bit easier to understand. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. He's right on top of a hill. I've been there, right on top of a hill by the Sea of Galilee. Those who were apprenticed to him, uh, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving in a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his, compa- his climbing companions. This is what he said. He said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. 
Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At that moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. And you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. And you're blessed when your commitments to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And so the very first need that that Jesus addresses to the people is their need for God. Let's look at another need real quickly. Number two, here's another need. We have a need for the grace of God and for his gospel. And the way Jesus does this, it's brilliant. Jesus starts off by talking about the law. And then he goes to a standard of righteousness that nobody could meet. He would talk about your enemies. You know how the law teaches you about the enemies, Jesus would say. But I say to you, and Jesus then raises the standard of righteousness toward the enemies beyond what anybody could ever dream or imagine, what anybody could ever attain to. He would talk about adultery. And he would say, you've heard, you know, what the Old Testament law says about adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And they go, yeah, yeah, we, we, we get that. We understand that. And then Jesus takes the standard, and he brings it up so high, it goes beyond what anybody could ever live up to. But if you have lust in your heart towards somebody else, you've already committed adultery. And everybody's going, oh, man, we've blown that one. Oh, that's the, we, that didn't go so well. He starts talking about divorce and marriage. They understood a little bit about divorce and marriage. There were two different rabbinical schools. One was the school of Hillel, which taught the more liberal approach to to divorce and remarriage. The other was the school of Shammai, which was the more conservative. And and they're trying to ask Jesus, which of these two rabbinical schools do you fall into? And Jesus is going, no, 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 I'm not one of these schools. No, 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 that's way down here. I'm up here, baby. One man, one woman. Have you not read that God created them male and female from the beginning? And Jesus, again, just takes the standard one man, one woman for a lifetime, and you build a family together. He starts talking about forgiveness. Here's what the law teaches about forgiveness. But here's what my father and I, here's what we teach about forgiveness. Now, here's the point. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus take everybody and make them feel really bad? Because there's a gap. There's a gap between the law and there's a gap between the righteousness of God. There's a gap between how high you can live up to it and how high the standard of God is. And that whole gap you and I feel. But we have a need for the grace of God. And the grace of God fills the gap. The grace of God is the gospel. The grace of God is this good news that comes into your life and this good news that we all feel the need for. We all know we've fallen short. We all know we don't attain the standard of right. All of us feel that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the grace of God. That's the blood of Christ coming in to fill the gap. That's his forgiveness coming in to fill the gap. And we all know that. And we all need the grace of God. And we all need the gospel. And so in a way that's just brilliant, Jesus takes the law that they were so familiar with, and he's going, you know what? Well, that was good, but that's not God's standard of righteousness. 
And everybody's going, we're doomed. Yeah, you are without Christ. You absolutely are without the blood of Jesus. So all of us have this need for the grace of God. And he does that on the Sermon on the Mount with your enemies and with prayer and all these different things. Let's look at the next need. The next need is we have a need to give, a need to pray, and a need to fast. Everybody has this need. Now you think about the need to give. Why do non-Christians give? Why do people who don't have a faith give? There's something within everybody that wants to do, to do good. There's something that God has wired within us on, on being able to give. Even non-Christians want to give. And even people who, who don't pray to our God, maybe they're Muslim, they pray to the false god Allah, there, there, there's this need within them. Where does that need come from? Where does the need to pray come from? Where does the need to give come from? It all comes from your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father, again, has wired you and I. Where does this need for fast? You go, well, I don't really have a need for fast. I like my food. Well, the point is, the point is with fasting is you have a need for something supernatural to take place in your life. And that's what fasting does. And so, again, Jesus addresses some of these great needs. So what does he say about these? Well, let's look at it. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, he doesn't say if. He says when. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and street corners to be honored by others. I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, I want your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, Jesus tells us how to give. Now he tells us how to pray. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, you go into your room and you close the door. I don't recommend too many movies from the stage, okay? But War Room, has anybody seen War Room yet? I highly recommend it. The lady teaches you how to pray, and she gets it out of here. She gets it right from here. It's a great Christian movie, War Room. Did I mention that before? Go see War Room. Have I mentioned that before this morning? What's the name of the movie? Go see it. But she gets it from this. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is unseen, he will reward you. And then he tells us about how to fast. Look at verses 17 and 18. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face. See, Jesus teaches us how to do this. Well, you and I have another need that Jesus addresses in this. Let's look at the next one. We have a need to invest long-term. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't save money. You should. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a retirement plan. You should. I'm not saying don't have an IRA or a 403B or whatever it is you have. You should. But Jesus is, that's not long-term. Those are not long-term. An IRA is not long-term. That's 30 or 40 years. That's the pregame warm-up. We're not even the appetizer stage in the full-course meal of heaven. He's saying to invest in the kingdom. And how do you invest in the kingdom of God? He tells us how to do that. Look at that next verse. He says, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, why is that a need? It's a need because we all have a desire to do something bigger than ourselves, to do something that outlasts us. None of us want, when we die, for our lives and our, our impact and our influence to go away. And Jesus is saying everybody has a need for a legacy to continue. But 
store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. All right, one more need. Here's another need. We have a need for, I got two more, I'm sorry. We have a need to stay ahead of worry. And Jesus talked all about how to stay ahead of worry. Remember we took a little test about worry that Sunday, scale of one to 10. Some of you were eights and nines. Some of you make coffee nervous, okay? And how do you stay ahead of worry? You seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus, tell us how to do it. Jesus said, you seek first the kingdom of God. How do you stay ahead of worry today? Today, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so he tells us about this. Look at this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or your body, what you wear. Is not your life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't store. But your father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add any time to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor. They don't spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Now, now if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Because even the pagans do that. But seek first, last sentence, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. We, we, we have a need to stay ahead of worry. If we don't stay ahead of worry, worry is going to just choke us out. Worry will paralyze us. We have a need to stay ahead of worry. Okay, one last one. We have a need for access. We need access to the throne of heaven. And guess what? We have it. Griffin, our youth pastor, preached on this passage a couple weeks ago, knocked it out of the park, did a super job. We have a need for access. Why? Because we got storms. We got storms in our life. And here's what Jesus taught us. He taught us how to fight. He said to do this. He said, ask, it'll be given. Seek, you'll find. Knock, the door will be open to you. Jesus teaches you to go about prayer on steroids right here. Why? Because we all have storms. If I were to meet with you at Starbucks for half an hour, you could start telling me about your storms. Every single one of us in this room have had storms of life. I remember a few years ago, it was about 18 years ago, actually, when Emily was just about one, our, our youngest. She's now 19. We were all five of us in our van, and we were in Memphis, Tennessee, was the home base, but we were vacationing in Destin, Florida. And so we leave Destin, Florida, and we are driving back to Memphis, and you basically spend a lot of time through Mississippi. You almost go through the entire state of Mississippi getting home. And I remember that day was weird, just one of those weird days where the weather was goofy and ominous and blowing, and then sun would come out, and then rain. And we get home that day, and I turn on the news, and there had been eight tornadoes that had touched down that day in the state of Mississippi. Hundreds of different, hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages were done, and, and several people that day lost their lives. There are storms all around us. I flew into New York City for, for the first time in my life in 9901. I'm looking out the airplane window, and I see these two giant twin towers that I've heard about and seen on the news, but I'm pretty close to these twin towers. 
And I made up my mind right then, I was going to ride the elevators clear to the top to those two, elevate, to those two t- t- twin towers. So my prayer partner, Mike Stafford, and I from the Memphis Church, we were there to see the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, which is on a Tuesday night. And so on Monday, Mike and I go all around New York. He knows New York City well. He shows me the city. That night, we actually had tickets. We're at the Yankee Stadium. I'm not a Yankees fan. I was there to bless them spiritually, to help them. (laughs) And so we're there that night, and um, the game was a little bit of a rain delay. took a long time to finish. We go to an Italian restaurant. We get back to our hotel room at 1 a.m. Tuesday morning. And the next morning, we're going, I've never been. I wanted to go to Wall Street. I wanted to go to ride the elevators to the Twin Towers, clear the top, and we're going we're to see the financial district. And so Mike said to me, he said, do you want to sleep in or do you want to get up early to, to go to the financial district? I said, we're going to be out late Tuesday night to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. Let's sleep in. Probably the only time in my life where sleeping in saved my life. Okay? And so we wake up Next morning, the loudspeaker booming, a voice, get up, get out, we're under a terrorist attack. Mike's queen-size bed was near the window. My queen-size bed was near the door. And Mike jumps out of bed, opens the drapes, and we see the smoke just billowing in the towers. And um, there's a guy knocking on our door, and Danita can't believe that I actually said this, but the guy knocking on our door says, get out, get out, get out. And I asked the guy if I could have 10 minutes to take a shower. (laughs) She said, why did you do that? I said, well, if I'm going to be out of my room all day, I at least want to be clean, okay? And the guy used a biblical term in a non-biblical way telling me to get out of the room. And I can't share what he said. But it was a very biblical term in a non-biblical fashion, and I got the point real quickly, all right? They turned our hotel room into a Red Cross center. It was a nurse's convention of all things going on there, and the nurses got it done, man. They start taking blood from people. My partner, Mike Stafford, and I, we just went around, we were shooting saline solution for hours in people's eyes, trying to help get some of the soot out of their eyes. There was a 19-year-old girl who spoke really good English. Her family did not. They owned a Godiva chocolate business at the bottom of one of the towers, destroyed. They're all crying. They're all upset. About a 27-year-old man I was trying to console, he was tripping. He was tripping out because his buddy jumped out of the towers that morning, and he actually saw his friend coming down. He refused to to be consoled. The news didn't really talk a lot about this, but Mike and I watched at least five, maybe six people get run over by the emergency vehicles. I never saw this. I never read about this. I never heard about this. But we're literally watching people. There's so much pandemonium going on, the fire trucks, the ambulances. We saw people getting just smacked and hit by these incredible vehicles. That's not a storm that I created. That's not a storm that I could have avoided. There are storms in your life that you cannot avoid. But where's your foundation? And what's your foundation built upon? Now, there are probably some storms that we can avoid. So what do you do if you're in a storm and you've caused the storm? What do you do if you're in a storm because of some disobedience? Well, the scriptures are clear. You repent. You confess Christ. You, you repent, 
and you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You confess your sins. But what if you do, if you're in a storm, and it's not your fault? In other words, spiritually, if this was a golf analogy, you're in the center of the fairway. Spiritually, you're not in the sand trap. You're not in the rough. You're not in the parking lot. You're in the center of the fairway. What do you do when you have a storm, but actually you're in pretty good spiritual shape? You trust, and you obey. You trust. You don't panic. You trust and you obey. And what do you do if a good friend of yours is in a storm? You're not in the storm, but a good friend of yours is in the rough or they're in the sand trap. What, what do you do for a good friend? You love them. You have patience with them. And you do everything that you possibly can to get them through the biggest storm or the major storms that are involved in their life. So we come to the end of this two-hour sermon, and Jesus gives us a story about a storm because he knows you are going to either go in a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're in the middle of a storm. He knows that. And so as we come to the end of this two-hour message, and we come to the end of our summer, and we've studied this now all summer long, I'm going to ask you to make a decision. I'm going to give you nine different categories on the screen in just a second. And I'm going to ask everybody in the room to make a decision. Because here's what happens. Foolish people hear the words of God and they never take any steps. But wise people hear the scriptures and they take steps. And wise people hear the scriptures and they take steps. Wise people hear the scriptures and they take steps. And they get healthier and stronger spiritually than they've ever had before. And so I'm asking you today, let's not come to the end of our summer and not make some decisions. If you do that, you're not going to be any wiser. You're the foolish person who hears the scriptures but doesn't put them into practice. What if you just made one decision today spiritually? So in this room, some of you need to make a decision about God. You just got to figure out who God is. Is he the little G-O-D, or is he the Lord God? You've got to make a decision about God. You can't keep playing this game. You can't keep drifting. You can't keep just sliding sideways. You've got to make a decision. Is he real? If he is, if he isn't, it's time to make a decision. There's a lot of you in this room that need to make a decision, though, about the grace of God and the gospel. Number two, you, you know this, but you've never got around to saying, I want to become a Christian. I want to give my life to Jesus. I need the blood of Christ to save me of all my unrighteousness. And so today, make a decision. It's one of the, it will be the biggest and best decision. Number three, you need to make a decision about giving, praying, and fasting. Will you be a percentage giver? Or are you going to be a consumer the rest of your life? Consumers are not happy. They're miserable people. It's all about them. But will you become a percentage giver? Will you make a decision? And about prayer, unless you have a time and a place, you'll never become a great prayer. Prayer is about time and a place, time and a place, time and a place, time and a place. If you don't have a time and you don't have a place, you'll just keep throwing up a few, and your prayer life will be frustrated all the days of your life. Will you make a decision? Maybe it's five minutes. The time's not the important part, but a time and a place every single day. 
I'm going to help you with the fast in January, so just stock up right now on those good apple fritters because it's coming. It's coming, all right? Number four, storing up treasures in heaven, which means you're going to decide to be a part of the kingdom. You're going to use your time, talent, resources for something beyond yourself. That's a decision. Number five, staying ahead of worry. You're going to seek first the kingdom of God. You're going to seek first his righteousness. That's a conscious decision. Gosh, I'm all freaked out. I'm all worried. No, 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 no. I'm not going to let worry get me. I'm not going to let worry get me. I'm going to make a decision to stay ahead of worry. Number six, a decision about I'm going to hear and I'm going to listen. I'm not just going to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen. You know, you can hear your spouse, but do you listen to your spouse, right? You can hear your boss, but do you listen to your boss? There's, there's a difference there. Number seven, what am I going to do with the scriptures? I, I'm actually going to start embracing the scriptures. I'm actually going to start learning to worship my heart to God, to give him his worship. Number eight, I'm, I'm going to go all in. I'm not going to stick my toe in the shallow end of the pool. I, I, I'm going to go all in. And number nine, I'm, I'm going to become wise. I'm going to build my house on the rock. So I'm going to ask you to make a decision. I'm going to ask you to take a step forward, and then we're going to sing a song called I Have Decided. It's an old, old hymn. Some of the students in the room will think it's a brand new song. That's cool. That's cool. We're going to sing this after you make it, but I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to make a decision. And then I'm going to ask you to stand up when you've made a decision. And when you've stood, then we'll sing this song together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, you make a decision and you stand up and we'll close the service by singing together. Oh God, give us the courage to hear, to listen, and to obey. Give us the courage, and then we'll have foundations built on the rock. In Jesus' name we pray.